1 John chapter 2, first six verses. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the, propiti- the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Amen. I wonder, have you ever got a text or a, a letter through the, uh, through the post? And you begin to read, and immediately you're, want, you're thinking, what's this all about? And your eye is just glancing down, further down, without even uh, reading it properly, because you're trying to get to the point of it, because you're not sure of what the person who has uh, communicated with you is really trying to get across, or what it's all about. Well, in the letter of First John, by the time we get to the first verse of chapter 2, uh, John makes it very clear why he's writing what this is all about. Um, keep, keep that open in your Bibles, if you would, as we look at it this morning. Chapter 2, verse 1, begins with John telling us that he is writing these things, I write these things unto you, that you sin not, so that you may not sin. This is the reason, he says, for his communication, that they wouldn't sin. What is sin? The Shorter Catechism tells us, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. It's any way we fail to meet the mark. Sins of commission, things we do that we must not do. Sins of omission, things we fail to do, that we must do. King David in Psalm 19 speaks of secret sins. By that he means sins that we commit without even seeing or knowing or being aware of in our own lives. We don't know that we've done them. We don't know that we've broken God's law. We don't even recognize. That's the level of darkness that we're in secret sins, and also presumptuous sins, sins that we have dared to commit willfully and knowingly. And he says, deliver me from presumptuous sins and let them not have dominion over me. Sin comes from within. It's not society that makes us sinners. And you don't have to be taught to sin. It's not something that lies out there. You won't pick it up off the street. 
in Balnehinch or Carriduff, like the common cold. It's not the evil influence of a culture that is far from God, as though that culture certainly can have an evil influence. But sin doesn't come from out there. It comes from in here. For from within, Jesus said, out of the heart come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, Jesus said. And they defile a person and make a person unclean. The greatest problem in the world today isn't Brexit. And it's not the European Union either. The greatest problem in the world today is sin. What lies behind the lust and the lies and the hatred? It's sin. The Bible says all have sinned come short of the glory of God. And John writes to these Christians whom he dearly loves and calls his children to give them certainty in the message of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the source of eternal life. And he says in chapter 1 verse 4, we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. And now in start of chapter 2, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things unto you so that you may not sin. There's something very transparent about the Apostle John that I love. He always seems to tell you why he's writing and what he's up to. He doesn't keep you guessing. Um, Back in his gospel, in John's gospel, you remember, he gives the game away totally near the end of of, uh, the book. And he says, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. It's all very open and above board with John. John has an agenda, and he wants you to know it. He writes, so that you will believe. Well, that would be a good place to start this morning. Do you believe? Do you believe that the man called Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, come down from heaven to earth as God's gift for you? Do you believe it? You've got to believe. But now John's writing to people who have believed. And again, he's told us what he's up to. He writes chapter 1, so that their joy might be full, and now he says, so that they might not sin. Why is sin so serious? Why is it imperative that we sin not? We live in a society that's in denial regarding sin, isn't it? The height of our cultural conception of the terminology of sin seems to be reduced to the level of some dieting guidance from Slimming World. Listen to this. A Slimming World spokesperson says, Our nutrition team routinely reviews our healthy eating plan in line with latest guidance, and we've made a number of updates to food optimizing for 2019. Members following the Extra Easy SP plan 
will be advised to enjoy a maximum of 10 sins per day. Sin is not a question of how many biscuits you eat. Sin is cosmic treason against God. It is rebellion against the holy and loving and righteous Lord to whom we owe everything. The trivial view of sin can only arise from a trivial view of God himself. God is holy. God is love. He is totally pure. He is perfectly good. And he is angry at sin. And why wouldn't he be when it destroys and corrupts and ruins and kills and strangles? It'll break down marriages. It'll divide families. It'll split churches. It'll plant bombs. It'll kill a child in its mother's womb. In the Old Testament, the prophet Habakkuk said that God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. He can't look at it. Make no mistake, God is angry at sin. But what's worse? He's angry at the people who sin. Our sin stores up God's wrath. Psalm 7 tells us that God is angry with the wicked every day. And why wouldn't he be when we as Creatures from the dust rise up to pour scorn on our Creator. When we rebel against His rule, break His laws, and have no time for Him in our thinking. When we shun His kingship and reject His rule, the one who gives us our existence and every breath that we ever breathe. Oh, if only we would see the beauty of God's holiness wonder of his purity and the glory of his perfection, we would know something of the horror of our sin. John writes that we would sin not, but we are sinners. And what hope can there possibly be for us? Well, John takes us into the heavenly courtroom where our sentence is about to be passed. We know what it has to be if we see our lives compared against the supreme standard of perfect love and the nature of our crimes and of who they've been committed against mean that it will be an eternal punishment because we are eternal beings and God is an eternal God. But just when we would expect the judge of the universe to pass sentence, he holds back. And the heavenly defense attorney steps in. John calls him the advocate. And the advocate says, I know this one. I have paid in full for their crimes. The account is settled. The debt is cleared. And this advocate is given a name. Jesus Christ, the righteous. John explains it all to us in these verses. 
You see, he says he's the one who is the propitiation for our sins. That is to say, he's the one who has satisfied God's justice, absorbing his wrath on the cross. And his sacrificial death is sufficient to cover and pay for the sins of the whole world. Why did he do it? Because he loves the world. That's what's amazing. The one who had every right to come to the world in judgment didn't come in judgment. He didn't come to judge the world. And he didn't come to blame. And as the song goes, he did not only come to seek, but was to save, he came. And when we call him Savior, we call him by his name. Christians are not people who never sin or who think they're getting pretty close to perfect. They are people who have seen the horror of their moral bankruptcy before God and have found Jesus Christ the righteous to be a friend in high places. If you know the advocate, if you've believed in Jesus and found shelter in him from the storm of God's wrath, make it your life's business to tell others. Tell them about Jesus the righteous one. Jesus, who during his time on earth would be found eating and drinking with sinners and rejects, and anyone who could see why they needed him. The same Jesus who paid our penalty in full, and who can and will be our advocate before the Father if we are trusting in him. John Newton, the slave trader turned abolitionist, famous for penning him Amazing Grace said late on in life although my memory fails me two things I remember very clearly I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour then John goes on in verse 3 and he talks a little about true knowledge he says by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments about knowing God and how we know that we know God. Perhaps sometimes young Christians tend towards crediting their generation with new light and a better understanding of God. And a tendency to think, we, we get God. We, we get what God's like. We, we know what he's about. Uh, more than the other folks. And then perhaps sometimes older Christians tend towards crediting themselves with a full and a proper understanding of the Lord and his ways. But John says, here's the test. John says, I'll tell you if you know God. Answer me this. Do you obey him? Here's how you know, John says. Here's how you know that you know if you keep his commandments. Verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now you can never come to know God by keeping his commandments. But the ones who do know him will follow in his ways. Not perfectly, but with determination. Our own denomination, a 
attracted rather a lot of attention at, at General Assembly last year to do with rulings around baptism and communicant membership. And the whole issue fell around what constitutes credible Christian profession. That was the key phrase, credible Christian profession. And this is exactly what John is talking about in verse 4. Look at verse 4 with me. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. There is then such a thing as someone who claims to be a Christian, but has no intention of keeping God's commandments. That's fake Christianity. Now, no believer will be free totally from sin in this life. Sin will still be there, dogging us and lurking in the shadows and the alleyways. But it won't be given the place of honor. There will be no settling with sin in the Christian's life. It'll be war. And our identity will be found in the one who has broken the chains and who has set us free. But what's our greatest motivation for obedience? Because John goes on to address that in verse 5. He says, But whoever keeps his word, that is the word of God, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher from the 19th century, said this. May we never take a dry look at sin, lest ere long we have a tongue parched in the flames of hell. To think that we have offended so kind and good a Lord is more than sufficient reason for being constant weepers. Lord, smite our rocky hearts and make the waters flow. Our great motivation for obedience to God and to Christ is his great love. The love he has poured out on us and filled us with. Love for him. And anyone who has been genuinely captivated by God's mercy, anyone who is truly caught up in God's love, will long to follow and to please him. Charles Hodge said, This is true religion. To approve what God approves, to hate what he hates, and to delight in what delights him. That's the real thing. That's the real thing. Are you learning to delight in what delights God? To love what he loves. By this we may know that we are in him, John says. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We should be keeping in step. It's like Peter says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let's walk the way we should be walking. There's a story told about Alexander the Great, the great one of the greatest military generals who ever lived conquered 
basically the, the known world at this time with this vast army. And um, as to the story's historical accuracy, it will make no claims. I do not know. But it's a helpful story, I think. It's said that one night during the campaign, Alexander couldn't sleep. And he left his tent to walk around the campgrounds. And as he was walking, he came across a soldier asleep on guard duty. A very serious offense. Penalty for falling asleep on guard duty was, in some cases, instant death. Commanding officer sometimes poured kerosene on the sleeping soldier and lit it. It was a very serious offense. The soldier began to wake up as Alexander the Great approached him. And recognizing who was standing in front of him, the young man feared for his life. And Alexander the Great asked him, Do you know the penalty for falling asleep on guard duty? Yes, sir, came the quivering response from this sleeping soldier. Then Alexander the Great said, Soldier, what's your name? The reply came back, Alexander. And Alexander the Great he asked the question again. He said, what is your name? I came back again. Alexander, sir. And a third time, and more forcefully, Alexander the Great said, what is your name? And he said, Alexander. And Alexander the Great looked him in the eye, and he said with intensity, soldier, either you change your name, or you change your behavior. Isn't that what John is saying in this letter? To the people he wrote to 2,000 years ago and to us today. He says, you call yourself a Christian. You say that you know God. You claim to know and love Christ. Well, he says, either you change your name or you change your behavior. There's no use in playing around with this. There's no use in falsehood, in insincerity, in claiming to know the Son of God and having no intention of following in His footsteps and walking in His ways and living for Him. Uh, if we know Him, to walk in the same way in which he walked. So, our sin, these things, John writes, so that we would sin not. But then our Savior, if any man does sin, we, if we're believers, if we're trusting in him, we have an advocate. We have someone who comes to our defense. We have a friend in high places speaks up for us and says I have paid in full I am the propitiation for their sins I have absorbed all of your wrath Father that was coming to this person and they are free to enter into the joy of the Lord and then there's our motivation love 
we know and love him, we will want to walk in his ways. We will not be perfect. We will not be totally free of sin in this life. But we will be seeking with determination to walk after Jesus. And that illustration at the end. Either change your name, soldier, or change your behavior.